0: Behold, the sword of power,
1: Excalibur. to the Oh Gosh oh Golly, oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and Nothing But Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 40, we're discussing Excalibur 39, Heart of the Matter, the third and blessedly final issue of the not so iconic crossover known as the Prometheum Exchange, starring Excalibur and the West Coast Avengers and everyone's favorite purple limbo demon, by which I obviously mean Darkoth. Excalibur number 39 was originally published in July 1991 and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, Mark Badger on pencils and inks, Brad kata on colors, Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Your wisdom has forged this ring. Hereafter, so that we remember our bonds, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. I will build a Round table, where this fellowship shall meet. Ah. And a hall about the table. And a castle about the hall. And I will marry. Ah. (laughs) And the land will have an end to wield Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table. a fabulous guest with us today to help us celebrate closing out this not-especially-welcome trilogy, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your regular demons. I am Dr. Anna Papad, you know me by now, sex, gender, superheroes, nightcrawler, and sometimes daredevil. I am, as always, Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. And you know what? I don't hate this issue as much as the last one. It's got... That going for it, I guess, and we may have a few things here or there to talk about. We'll see. Doing my best to stay positive today. <laughs> I am joined, as always, by Mav. Say your thing.
2: Hi, I'm Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I, I'd like to apologize to the audience for my behavior the last two weeks, or 27 <laughs> weeks, or 88 <laughs> weeks. I'm not sure how long, for me, the exchange. Been how going long on. have we been in limbo? I, 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 mean, I mean, I'm, I'm certain it was the last. 347 episodes of this show have been about Promethean Exchange, and um, (laughs) it's over now. And like literally everything, I I mean, I'm never going to complain again. That's not true, but I'm never going to complain again. i just feel so overjoyed i am through this like nothing bad can happen nothing can kill my buzz i feel great i am looking forward to discussing sex and gender and race and with all the stuff that i do there's thoughts of those things in this issue but all the stuff that i do we're going to discuss for the next hundred some odd issues of excalibur and i feel great about it no no complaints
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that mav andrew what have you got for us this week
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont run, which studies the vast heights and unfathomable depths of some of the finest character stories in comics history. But today, like so many of our listeners, I'm really just looking to get closure on that Darkoth the demon character who's been keeping (laughs) us all up at night for so many years, wondering whatever became of him. For a lot of us, this is the real end game, and I'm delighted to be here with the three of you on your left.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Oh, yeah. we'll we'll get to that Dark Hoth conclusion. All right. The pod is delighted to welcome this week's guest, a woman who knows comics and lots else besides. She has a name
3: and it is Andrea Ayres. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>
1: We are thrilled and delighted to have you. I'll tell the listeners a little bit about you. Andrea is a writer, critic, and scholar interested in visual rhetoric, psychology, and fan culture. She also has what she describes as a weird cottage fascination with arbitration law. Her first love was politics, and now she writes about comics and will never cease making comparisons between the two. She lives in Santa Cruz and is allergic to rotting kelp, which has really sucked the fun out of living by the ocean.
3: Is that true, Andrea? It really is. Like, every morning I wake up and I live, like, I didn't know that, like, Santa Cruz apparently is known for its dense kelp, which apparently helps with surfing. I don't know if that's something they just tell people who move here so that they sound like imbeciles when they talk. Like, um... But like every morning I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? Is this anxiety? Is this? And I'm like, oh no, it's kelp. It's just (laughs) molding kelp on the beaches. So yeah, so I went to an allergist and he was like, yeah, the only way you can actually get rid of that is if you move. But since you just moved here, I guess that's not really a a solution. I was like, thanks. I'm glad I get to pay hundreds of dollars for that advice. Oh my God
1: that's like the joke about the the doctor thing of like well don't do that that's not helpful
3: yeah (laughs) it's like well it's already been done sir
1: oh (laughs) well i'm very sorry about that can we perhaps distract you with some discussion of Prometheum exchange oh sorry Mm. we could (laughs) have had you on for such a bad that was just mean (laughs) i know i'm sorry i i do have to mention that one i don't Know if it was the first time we virtually met but it might have been but I gave a talk at like Andrea's like school a year and a bit ago where I was like had to come had to come was Graciously invited to come and give a talk about superheroes and sexuality. And it's funny because I was so stressed out and uninspired when I was doing that talk that I kind of just did a sexy nightcrawler talk. And that was like kind of where a bunch of my ideas on that subject started to coalesce. So, in a way, Andrea, you were present at my origin
3: story. (laughs) To be honest, it was probably my favorite talk. Like, I. Absolutely. We, you know, had to keep a journal throughout the thing. And I like, I drew Nightcrawler, like the image that you showed. And so like, I painted it. And I was like, this is great. This is my favorite talk. Uh, Yeah. So I only saw Genius uh, on my end, which... There was there was sexy Namor and
1: some other things in that talk as well, but yeah,
3: yeah, we talked about the iconic <laughs> swimsuit issue, which is resonant ah. always in my mind, as <laughs> it Marvel, should be.
2: Marvel Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. We've had many, we've had many a discussion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I learned this week that Chris Cooper, the guy who got you know the bird watching by while well, black thing in Central Park, that mm-hmm. Chris Cooper. Mm-hmm. He was one of the editors of one of the Marvel yes. swimsuit specials. Yes. And I had no idea of that.
2: He, yeah, he, there, was a, there was a connection. When that story first came out, there was a connection of, you know, Chris Cooper. And like, because literally, you know, when, whenever someone like CNN or NBC News or whoever, whenever like one of the news channels is trying to, they're trying to make people as relevant as possible. So it's like Chris Cooper, former Marvel Comics editor. He has like literally like four or five, like he has a handful of credits from decades ago. And yes, that's him.
1: <laughs> but that's one of them. And that's yes. one of the most important credits you could possibly have.
2: I am eternally jealous, of course. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I love the Marvel sim- Illustrated Edition, sim- editions. I thought that when, when those came out, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I was like, and not just because it was sexy. I was like, wow, something's happening here. I don't know what to think about this. And much of the rest <laughs> of my life has just been about, you know, trying to figure that out. So, you know. <laughs>
1: There's a couple of Excalibur pinups, and one of them is pretty fun, but Kurt's wearing Bermuda shorts in it, which seems like really a poor choice for him at the beach, (laughs) and it just blows my mind to this day. I mean, in the sense that, obviously, he canonically wears a Speedo in comics. I mean, that's been in Excalibur Mm -hmm. comics, and he's throwing on Bermuda shorts for the swimsuit special? What the hell is happening?
2: You're going surfing. You know, you have to have the look. Kurt, if nothing else, Mm -hmm. certainly knows to cosplay for the occasion. You know he's not swimming on his own. He's uh, he's on the beach. You know it's part of the outfit. He's doing it to fit in. You're
1: you're not going to sell me on this map. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's get back to our guest um, and tell our listeners a little bit more about her. So, Andrea, I don't know a lot about your comics origin story, and I love talking to people about that. So, tell us a little bit about it. Have you been a lifelong comics reader?
3: It is funny because the answer to that is no. Um, (laughs) I. Grew up, um, I don't know if you know of Oliver Sava, but he is a writer. I do. um, And we went to high school together, and uh, we were in theater together, and I would often drive him home, and sometimes I would drive him to the comics shop to pick up the latest comics. I remember this very well because, one, I was a terrible driver and should never have been driving any other human around but two I was just I could never understand his fascination and it wasn't until I like I made this video game about oatmeal and I um hired an artist Who works in comics. And so I kind of went a a very circuitous route into comics. But that's like, I remember reading the Sunday funnies with my parents, but until I would say I was what, maybe early 30s, and I'm 36 now, like I had never, it had never been part of my life.
1: What kind of things are you especially drawn to? Like, I mean, X Men comics. I know you obviously know pretty well. You like do X Men editing and various Marvel comics. Well, not just Marvel, but comics editing, editing and writing for Comics XF, which is how I know you. But yeah, like, what kind of stuff are you particularly drawn to? Are you more on the superhero side or the indie side, or are you a voracious reader of all things?
3: I like to really read a, as much as I can, since I feel like I'm, I'm still learning. You know, like what I really like, and I cannot stop because I I kind of grew up writing about um, first I started writing about politics for different websites and then I wrote about video games and so now I write about comics and just seeing the interplay between them all I try to Mm -hmm. read as much and as broadly as I can because I love seeing the connections between those I think one of the first things I ever wrote was how like soap operas and comics how much they have in common um, and their use of memory to like tell different stories or reimagine narratives and kind of like take back different power dynamics that maybe aren't afforded to people using like I don't know. The word is not coming to me, but, oh my gosh, it starts with an A. I need, I need, when you can't remember something. Oh, I have an issue. Thank you. you. Holy crud. (laughs) I kept on wanting to say like anemia and I was like, no, Andrea, that's, that's really not it. Um, that was like
1: a, a meta-commentary, self-reflexive.
3: Like, I feel, I know, I'm going to have to talk to my therapist about that.
1: <laughs> oh, no, no, please, please don't. No. It's nothing. But the, like, please continue because that sounds awesome.
3: But, I mean, that's truly neither. I could go off on that, and I I shan't. But that is kind of, I just like to explore the, like, sociological and political of comics and words and visuals. And so that's kind of where i'm at now i i love the dynamics of superhero comics and like everything that informs them like all the background machinations and obviously indies are kind of like those are the things i'll choose to read on the weekend when i want to have a a good time if i want to have a bad time sometimes i'll i'll read more broadly like superhero <laughs> comics <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of fair enough, but do you have a particular affection for X-Men, though?
3: I would say, like, I have been enjoying the, like, New Mutants with Vita, and I just have adored everything that they do, so, yeah. So are you more like
1: a fan of current stuff? Or like, what's your mileage on, like, had you read classic Excalibur before? Are you coming in fresh? Because, oh God, please tell me this isn't your first issue.
3: No, this is not my first issue. Thank goodness. Um, goodness. goodness. I would feel horrible about that.
1: I would feel so bad. We've done that to a couple of other guests on particularly not very good issues. And I would feel so bad This would be be the
2: worst. This would be the worst thing we'd ever done. I mean, even even if it's not your first issue, I still apologize that you had to deal with this. Yeah, really.
3: (laughs) I mean, we can continue apologizing. It's great. I love reading bad things. Uh, Well, you're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. So in this case, this was like dessert. I was like, ooh, yeah, trash.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll do our issue summary and come back to some of those first impressions about the trashiness of this (laughs) comic because I'm interested to get into it. So I know we have lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. You're the real heart of Limbo. But we will begin our journey out of Limbo with that plot summary. Excalibur number 39 begins where Excalibur number 38 left off. With the end of the world, of course, Doctor Doom has plunged the soul sword into the beating heart of Limbo to transform Limbo into Prometheum to rule the world. It's weird, but anyway. Excalibur and the West Coast Avengers have arrived to stop him and do their best. Rachel is able to telekinetically stop the sword from cleaving deeper, which gives everyone time to fight some more and perform some plot exposition. As everyone is fighting Doom and demons, Megan is rocked by agony and empathy for the demon who has it in for Doom, who she realizes is not a demon at all before long, Doom and the one demon who hates him face off. Between punches, we learn his name is Darkoth, and he is no demon, but a man experimented on by Doom, who's covered the man's skeleton in Prometheum before Doom knew of the substance's value as a power supply. This gave him a demon's form, and when he dies, the Prometheum in his body causes him to be resurrected in limbo. I'm going to read the next bit pretty much right from the Marvel fandom wiki because it makes more sense than anything I could write up, or really anything I thought actually happened in this comic. I was clearly confused. Doom continues battling Darkoth until they collide with Phoenix, causing her to lose concentration. This causes the Soul Sword to slip fully into the heart of Limbo and utterly obliterate it. Doom, satisfied with the outcome, returns to Earth through a portal to wait for the dimension to collapse into a massive ball of Prometheum. As Darkhoth claims the Soul Sword, his hate causes the demons to change into a swirling mass that attack the heroes from everywhere. He plans to die in the collapse of Limbo, causing it to cease to be, rather than collapse into Prometheum. Megan, as an empath, manages to persuade him to stop, and suddenly the dimension is empty as he finds peace within himself. He sends the heroes home, including a distraught kitty as Lockheed is seriously wounded. He keeps Megan for a moment longer, thanking her for her help. He sends her home, then, with the dimension purged of Prometheum, he sits alone, ready to defend the realm. Just a lot. Really a lot at the end there. Okay, let's do those first impressions. Guest privilege, we're coming to you, Andrea. What's your mileage on this issue? The word trash was already thrown around. What did you make of this one?
3: You know, I think, like, I... I was thinking about how I could describe this. And it's like, what I came up with, it's like being hit in the face with like a (laughs) wet spaghetti noodle, which is like just like one and just from like some random direction you weren't sure where it came from like it's annoying and you're like why did that happen to me but it's not gonna ruin your life and I feel like that pretty much sums up my experience with this issue and this arc it feels like why why just why it's
1: <laughs> like a perfect because it's not like I'm actively offended by it it's just like why yeah yeah <laughs>
3: Like, I know people spent time, their labor, like the minutes of their lives, which we only have one of that I know of anyway. And this is what was chosen. And I just feel there's a little bit of sadness about that, to be honest. But yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my heart is aching with empathy (laughs) for that now. (laughs) (laughs) The sadness of the work for hire comic book industry. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Any other first impressions that you want to get off your chest? Moments, Um, rants, or raves?
3: I'm sure we'll come to it, but, like, I really enjoy how the women in this issue just seemingly can't do anything right. They're like not paying attention. They're like, Oh gosh, what does Scarlet Witch say? She's like, she can barely do anything. I don't know. It's just, I love it. Um, Oh no, here, here. She says, I blame myself. And it's like, well, of course you do. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, that's, I, I look forward to talking more about that.
1: We absolutely can talk more about that, and we can revisit some of our Scott Lobdell discussion as well. Andrew and Mav, do you want to chip in first impressions before we get into any of that?
0: I want to pick up on what Andrea was saying, because I mentioned mm-hmm. this before we started taping. The helplessness of the women, that that's kind of a Lobdell thing, especially mm-hmm. early on. But Rachel knows how to program a VCR. She mentions this in the book that she can't even program a VCR. Rachel is a telepath who comes from a technocratic future. Right. Come on. She knows how to program a VCR. Ridiculous or uh, yeah she does and
2: this is this is lovedale being stupid because the argument would be that she can't program the vcr for the same reason that like i don't know in 2021 maybe you can't drive stick shift or something
0: right like she comes yeah, from rewind clock. yeah
2: yeah she she comes from far enough into the future like she's she's from now basically if they're in night, <laughs> if they're in 1990 this is this book came out in 82, 91? 91, 91. 91. So if they're in 1991, she's from 2021. She's from now. Maybe she can't program a VCR. Hey, it's a stupid argument. Disagree. It's a stupid argument. It's so stupid. It is it is so it is like like he's not thinking this far. He he's just thinking that this is a topical reference. The kids will love this. They'll get it. It was not yeah. No, it it wasn't.
0: <laughs> it's such a small slight character dig though. Like those are the things that I hate about Love Yes. The casual dismissal. A feminine agency in little details.
2: Frankly, the men aren't much better, but it, it, he is especially bad with the women. He's a bad writer at this point. I will give him credit and say he be, he is a very improved writer later on, but I, he's never going to be one of my favorite writers. And this is, uh, I think I said very early on, these three issues are quite possibly my least favorite of all Marvel comics ever produced like literally oh. I, I there's there's wow. i hate the promethean exchange and maybe i'm harder on it because it's in you know one of my favorite comic book series but like i read speedball speedball was better than this okay <laughs> <laughs> You know, issues of, of Darkhawk are better than this. This is garbage. This is, the art's horrible. The story's horrible. Yay, there's Darkhawk. Darkhawk, last seen in, you know, Official Handbook to the Marvel Universe, Deluxe Edition, number 16. <laughs> that's the last, that's his last appearance, which even that was years earlier. Like, it's just, he chose a random villain or hero. At, like, nothing here makes sense. No one's in character. Why is Rachel, you know, Rachel and Scarlet Witch, and by the way, this is, this is Scarlet Witch of, west coast avengers where she is now moving into the super powerful oh my god she's the most powerful person in the universe why have we yeah, been treating yeah. her like they're that's the storyline she's going through right now so let's just um yeah whatever you yeah, we'll just make her stupid and inconsequential everyone's stupid and consequential even doom why is doom mm-hmm. a moron in this book <laughs> like-
1: okay well i want to get to all of that but maybe let's start with the lobdell <laughs> and the women issue because i wanted to revisit that yeah. and we, um, so we talked about this a little bit back in our episode on Excalibur 37. Um, some of the real life Scott Lobdell stuff that we've kind of been alluding to in various episodes. Um, I won't go into the whole details again here, but the shortest possible version of it is Scott Lobdell has harassed women in the comic book industry, probably outside of the comic book industry as well. Um, he's admitted to this in at least one case, and um, we know that it's happened other times as well. Um, we're talking inappropriate sexual comments and messages, unwelcome sexual propositions, And in the case that he admitted to, there were racist comments involved as well. So fun times. In Uh, public, too, Obviously, in public. Yep, yep, yep. So everybody witnessed this. And obviously, other sort of private exchanges came to light um, surrounding that as well. So obviously, all of this is compounded by power dynamics when we're talking about this kind of thing. Like Lobdell had quite a bit of power in the comic book industry when many of these things happened, which can be especially difficult for the person being harassed to navigate This is one of the big problems with this kind of thing, in addition to it just being terrible anyway. There's always the fear when you're in that situation that you might harm your career just by like standing up for yourself. We're kind of, all of us here, familiar with kind of some of the problems here. But I wanted to, this is a fun topic for you, Andrea, I'm sorry, but I did want to have a conversation about, because we're going to be having conversations about this with when we get to Warren Ellis as well, so it makes sense to just start having some of these conversations. But if you had thoughts about how do we handle, when we're talking about a book, by a problematic creator? creator? Like, how much should it matter? I mean, we're not supporting him financially by purchasing this book. You know, I'm reading it in a copy from 30 years ago. I didn't send Scott Lobdell any money. But aside from that, you know, how do we approach a text like this? Like, should we be reading his biography into this text? Should we just not talk about the text at all? Should we make that the focus of the discussion? Like, I know you read plenty of texts by problematic creators and have to deal with this in some of your own writing. What are some of your thoughts about how to handle
3: that? I think there's... I was thinking about this as I was reading it, and i I don't think you can divorce like mm-hmm. I mean you can't you see elements of of who he is come out in the way women like in his writing. I think like people inevitably put themselves into their writing no matter what they say it's impossible it is an impossible thing to not even if you're writing for a large corporation like it all is informed by your experiences and your life and it's just I think you cannot divorce the two I think because of that you how you approach reading like problematic people is you do so with intention you look at the history you are aware of it and i think you have a discussion about it there was a a recent kind of reimagination of a heart of darkness by joseph conrad which was changed into a graphic novel and i was reading back through some of this piece that was doing um a criticism of joseph conrad um it's from a book of prefaces but i if I could read like two sentences from that, I thought it kind of sums up how I feel about this. Um, of course. It says, there's a notion that judgments of living artists are impossible. They are bound to be corrupted, we are told, by prejudice, false perspective, mob, emotion, error. The question whether this or that man is great or small is one which only posterity can answer. A silly begging of the question, for doesn't posterity also make mistakes? Shakespeare's ghost has seen two or three posterities, beautifully at odds. And I just thought, like, there's that notion we have where, like, we think because we're flawed people that we can't judge other flawed people for their flawed beliefs. And I think the way you kind of overcome that is by saying, like, plainly, you look at what happened and you read and talk with intention and clarity and transparency.
1: Yeah, I mean... That's a really succinct and clear way of putting it. I mean, how would we approach that in this case, then? I mean, I think you're absolutely right that it does make sense to read some of the biography into this. I think where I'm coming from about it is that as, I mean, you know, we're literature scholars on this podcast, um, some of us anyway, and one of the things that we get told to do is to not bring biography into it ever, and it kind of gets hard to, like, retrain ourselves, like, in that respect. And it's fun, like, I mean, I see this in myself as a comic scholar, because I so rarely think about industry or biography things and i have to when it's something like this that you know affects the work in a real way and i do but at the same time it's not usually foremost on my mind because it's just not my training
2: can i push it that yeah on? ma'am i know you, you, is, okay, you want so, you wanna so this in. okay this is a weird and i'm gonna go way more i know i do a lot of comedy relief here i'm gonna go way more serious academic for just give me five minutes here and then i swear i'll go back to like fart jokes at the end um but but one of the things that we we learn as literary scholars is mired in mid-20th century criticism it's called the new new criticism where you know the text is text don't bring anything you know okay death of the author death of the author um Mm. uh, the mort de la tour is uh the death of the author which which is written by roland bart and i am a huge bart fanboy i love a lot of his work However, I think it is not that simple. I am also a fanboy of Walter Benjamin, who argues that the storyteller does not create the story by himself. The story is created in the mind of the storyteller and in the mind of the reader. The reader and the storyteller negotiate their, you know, the act of reading. The act of reading and reading a story is, is an act of negotiation of what you read with The intention of the author, the cultural context in which it was written, and the cultural context in which you are reading it in. It is ridiculous to assume that a reader in the year 2021 is going to read some story from 1421 and not see lots of sexism in it you are you live 600 years later it's a different world right <laughs> like it's just like that's how it's going to work it doesn't matter what Labdell intended it doesn't matter if Labdell intended to like bring his, uh, some of his own sexism in what matters is it's 2021 and I do know who Scott Lobdell is and frankly this bothered me when I read it in 1991 it bothers me more now and that has to be okay this comes into play a lot in criticism it's an argument it's a meta argument that happens in cultural studies as to you know when are we being pure new critics when are we being pure the author is dead and when are we being pure um, cultural context comparative literature people and there is no right answer for that however i think in order to do our jobs correctly we have to negotiate this this comes in andrew like you'll you'll speak this you just had this like conversation on claremont run completely different case where somebody was like well you know i don't think it's fair to put like your modern sensibilities on this this wolverine story from 30 years ago Oh right and First off, yes, it is. Second, Andrew has a PhD in literally doing this. Third, if you're reading the Claremont run why are you reading the Claremont run? Because that's all it is, is literally like the Claremont run is, is nothing but Andrew overanalyzing, like with literary analysis, comic books from 30 or years ago. underanalyzing. Right, yeah, but analyzing
1: right. with exactly the <laughs> right. right amount of attention. But that's
2: the, but that's the project is to bring academic analysis to comics mm-hmm. that Chris Claremont stopped writing 30 years ago. Like that's the gimmick, right? Like there's nothing more to it. So yes, I think we have to take into the context not only who labdell was when he wrote this but who he is now and just who we are like it's just there's no way to not read it that way there's no way to uh, one of my favorite books to teach as a professor like a book that i assign to my students constantly is tarzan if you've never read tarzan if you've only ever seen the disney movie tarzan is super racist Everything about it is massively, massively (laughs) racist. That's why I assign it, because I like having the conversation of, okay, let's try to take this into context of when it was written 110 years ago. And let's try to take it into context of now and see what we do with these changes. How does our cultural context change in relation to this story, which is frozen in stasis and time? So I think we have to do that. And now, again, you know, poop jokes from here on out for me <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I don't have to do that but i mean it's arguably even more complicated though when we're talking about something that exists in the present i right. mean scott dell's scott lobdell has been on yeah. the dl yeah. since he kind of stepped away from writing for dc comics several years ago but but he's this is from a hundred years ago yeah he's yeah, alive, he's he's alive, a alive and was an... writing comics until recently
2: yeah i think he like 2000 he acknowledged the controversy and basically stepped away and i want to say 2013 2014 so it's not that far removed
1: so it just I agree with everything that you know both of you have said but it's just you see it in criticism of these things where it's like I can't believe I should believe be able to believe because you know I'm cynical I've been around a blog or two but you know so many times I'll read comic book reviews of a creator who's so problematic and it's well known that they're problematic and there's just no acknowledgement absolutely none and it's sort of frustrating the ways, depending on kind of your subject position, you're required to speak about these things. And then other people aren't required to speak about them. Right. I mean, obviously, if you're minoritized at all in these spaces, you're required to speak about them. And then if you're not, you're often not. And God, that's frustrating. Like that really, really frustrates me because it's like another podcast or another sort of critic would just do a whole thing about Warren Ellis and not even talk about it. Yeah. And I don't think anybody should be allowed to get away with that. And yet they can. That's just a vent, basically.
2: Well, or, I mean, it's not our job to decide how other people like if you want to be a pure new I know, critic. I know. Sure. OK, fine. And I, and that's not, not the not job if you're a pure new critic. Right. No, yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> well, but, but, not, but 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 sure, if that's what you want to do. Sure. It's not this show. It's not what any of the three of us do. It's not what Andrea does. It's you know. And does the show have to be fair to that point of view? No, because it's our show. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it does. It doesn't, right? Like it, it, doesn't. Like we are going to put our own sensibilities into it. That's why we wanted to do this in the first place. And sometimes, you know, there's times where we dis- where we disagree. I'll, since I can I can't speak to being a woman. With a In a history of se- sexual harassment in the industry. What I can talk about is, because we, we talked about this in, at length on my other show, how do I negotiate Bill Cosby? Bill Cosby is a deplorable human being who is one of the most important black creators that has ever lived, period. Right. I say that completely unironically. It is impossible to do pop culture of the 20th century, my job without dealing with Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby has done so much good in this universe, and he also is a evil, evil person who raped a whole lot of people. I just have to do both. And, yeah, like, I have to do both, or I'm not appropriately analyzing culture of the 20th century because over this 50-year period, he was pop culture and yeah. also evil. Like, so you just have to address that, and I think we're doing that. We're talking about the evil that L'Abdel has done and we're talking about the story. And at least this is easy, because at least we, at the end of the day, we could say, even if he hadn't sexually harassed anybody, this is an awful story. It's just crap. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> so, it would be so sex it's anyway. Yeah, it <laughs> sucks like, anyway. So.
1: I mean, I'm curious about to hear your thoughts on it, Andrew, because... I mean, we haven't brought up how this, inter- well, we, you know, we've been sort of talking around it, but how this interacts with strategies of reparative reading, right? Which is something that gets done a lot to X-Men Comics in terms of, yeah. you know, bringing out the queer subtext of these stories and stuff and being like, no, the meaning of this space and this story and this franchise exists in the minds of the readers and the spaces that we create out of the flawed thing that we are basing it on, right? And that's sort of part of what is involved in reparative reading. And that's something we obviously do a lot on this podcast as well. So, I mean, how does that factor into some of these discussions you know i mean can we just do a reparative reading of this that neglects social context or is that not what we're talking about when we do reparative reading i mean is there is there a text that exists and a text that exists among no. the, yeah okay yeah. <laughs> go <ahead. laughs> no, there, there,
0: there is no, no there is no text it's it's purely subjective everybody's reading mm-hmm. is different everybody read a different book when they read this story some yep. of them read it without knowing who Scott labdell was mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. obviously that was a different experience so we pick and choose uh, what context we want to provide uh, what um elements of the story that we think are interesting and we don't tell people how to interpret a text except when we say that the premium exchange is awful but that's okay because (laughs) it was to all of us
1: (laughs) <laughs> but i guess what i'm asking though is that if we're saying that that how we interpret it is fine is it fine to interpret it minus the context of scott lobdell's biography
0: yes yeah a hundred percent i can't uh, again yeah we don't have can't to do control people's circumstances right. we, we don't have control yeah. over paratext mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so I, I think trying to pretend that we do is a massive flex on the part of any academic mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and doesn't really hold up
1: yeah, yeah, I guess I'm just wondering about the ethics of that. But anyway, Andrea, go ahead.
3: Well, just the the past few minutes have just been thinking a lot about you know in the realm of like the way political news and you know in the states is covered has been um, a disgusting, horrible like morass. It's a mess, right? And I so I was reading, it's Gay Tuckman's Making News by Doing Work, Routinizing the Unexpected. It's from like 1973. And it just goes into the way like the mechanization of work ends up implicitly informing like how news is written and who writes it and who thinks about what news is and what we say when we say news like what that means to me versus what that means to someone else um, mm-hmm. what that meant in 1973 versus what that means today and I can't stop drawing like comparisons between those things because there is a sort of like the notion that you know one of the issues is pol- political punditry if you turn on like CNN MSNBC. NBC, fox news like a pundit is likely the person who's going to explain to you what is in the build back better bill and whether or not that's mm-hmm. good or bad but that's not actually telling me anything about what that bill may or may not be doing for my life and i think something that happens when you know on a you were saying how uh sometimes when there are reviews of comics like they won't bring up like the past of like Warren Ellis at all and i think that that is informed by this belief that there's such a thing of subjectivity and I think it kind of gets into the sort of problematic nature that happens with comics journalism in general and the fact that there isn't a long tradition of comics journalism and because of that we just end up replicating what we see and what we see is actually a huge problem and in the journalistic I use scare quotes around that um enterprise that is comics journalism like you know you see all of those kind of bad behaviors replicate Because people think, well, an institution is doing this, and if the institution is doing this, then I, as an individual, should do that because, you know, being subjective is important. And, yeah, that's just not the world we live in. And because of that, we see the disservice that that has to our politics, to our culture, to our societies well can
0: I maybe point this back at Anna just because one of the things that I've talked about this before on the pod that that I've always found remarkable about Anna's scholarly work and sort of a more critical work is just her capacity to bring in her personal experience Mm -hmm. and readings Mm -hmm. and present things that feel you know subjective like you understand this is Anna's interpretation of it but it still contributes to like the broader understanding of a particular text even if you don't share Anna's perspective I just Mm -hmm. wondering what you would sort of say to that biographically Anna?
1: Uh, I don't know how to answer that necessarily I mean I have a lot of thoughts about different ways that you can do that kind of work effectively I mean the thing that I like about that is just you know it harkens back to a long tradition of the personal being political and I think that acknowledging the personal is really important and I just think a lot of people don't do it well or honestly and the trick to I don't even want to say the trick to doing that because I'm uncomfortable saying that I do it well but I try to be as honest as possible about it and my hope is that other people see their own processes of subjective reading modeled through the subjective reading that I'm practicing. And especially if I'm going to talk about it honestly, like, you know, because I'll listen to anybody talk about their favorite X-Men character. You know, even if it's not my reading of the thing, I find that really identifiable because it's exactly what I do for my own thing, even though we come to different conclusions. So I mean, I the same way that sort of when you lecture you're trying to model close reading i'm trying to model my own introspection through my critical analysis so that mm-hmm. someone can see my processes and that those processes are transparent and they can understand how i would have arrived at those conclusions like both on an academic scholarly level and on a personal level and so they can understand like the, the subjectivity is like transparent there right i'm just is mm-hmm. that making like any sense or am i just yeah yeah But yeah, I just like, I don't know. These conversations are so complicated and we could spend the whole pod doing it. I'll mention this and then if I decide that I want to cut it, I'll cut it, but... There was recently a weird thing that happened with me where um, in a review of Douglas Walk's All the Marbles for the New York Times, um, Juno Diaz name dropped me like as a positive thing. He was like, oh, someone who's doing really good work in this area is Anna Pappard. And I'm like, oh, and someone tagged me about it on Twitter. And I I had a conversation with, with Andrew and Mav about it, about should I tweet this out? I don't know what to do. And I, you know, I was I I didn't even really genuinely consider putting it on my social just because I don't want to seem like I'm kind of riding the coattails of being name checked by someone who is problematic as we've been using that word a lot today but it's just like those conversations are so complicated because other people had no problem kind of posting about it or tagging me and yet I felt that I had an obligation to have a problem with it and we're just all coming at these things from different places and making different decisions about what's too problematic and what's problematic in which ways and it just becomes so incredibly complicated i do think like the answer to all of this is just to just make sure that we're like having these conversations mm-hmm. and thinking through mm-hmm. our own sort of investment and in things and that's sort of a bullshit answer but I it think is complicated. It's a bullshit answer
2: i uh, no. yeah. my my answer I'll, I'll say what my answer to you was when we had this discussion which was i don't think you have an obligation to do anything I don't think you have an obligation to feel bad about it. I don't think you have an obligation to not feel bad about it. I think that you have your response. So I don't want to, we're doing enough rehashing the world of Love Del. I don't want to rehash the world of Diaz. Um, no, let's not. But like, yes. <laughs>
1: People can look it up. He's
2: got he problematic issues, not on the level of evil of Bill Cosby,
1: but bad,
2: you know, and i am never been in the room. I don't want to judge D- Diaz. He's got a career because he does. And I think that at the end of the day, for me, not for Anna, for me, my friend was mentioned in the New York Times. And that's awesome.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like So Aww.
2: so that's so that matters to me. And it doesn't matter because, frankly, in the context at which Anna was mentioned, it was and Anna is doing good work in this area, which mm-hmm. is Demonstrably true. And it is recognized by a New York Times columnist as a thing that she is doing that is demonstrably true. In as much as I care about Anna and the kind of work that she does, Diaz's personal life, good or bad, doesn't matter because it's not like he mentioned her in the context of... And here is a person who agrees with my life choices. That's not what he did, right? I was and i'm not and i'm and I, and i'm not gonna I'm not even gonna name the name. I was recently tagged in i was like many academics i have um little daemons that go and let me know when someone cites me and it was like i was recently cited by another scholar who i have serious problems with mm-hmm. for personal reasons that i'm not even going to mention not going to mention his name not gonna mention, cause i going to because i don't want to give him that kind of breath and to me i was just like you don't like this however it's also good for me that people care about my work enough to tag me in a conversation about something so like cite me so like It's a complicated web of things. I mean, there are, we live in a world with some problematic people, and frankly, for all I know, everyone's evil and I just don't know what happens. You know, the milkshake duck theory, right? Like maybe I just don't know about what other people, what evil the good people are doing. I can't know that up for everything. And I, I think it's fine for Anna to be proud of what she's done because she does do good work, which is why. And she's not going to say that herself, but I will and Andrew will. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but um, I also think it's okay for her to feel weird about it because I've been in that situation and that's, you know, she's human.
1: Uh oh, Thank you, Mav You're for right. complimenting my humanness. seriously, I was I was very touched by that. Seriously, I'm just being being cynical as a protection mm-hmm. measure. Um let's talk about this comic a little bit more and like get into some of the Dark specific sexism <laughs> that, we, that we have going on here. Yeah, I mean I thought I was gonna talk about him first, but actually let's talk about the conclusion, what what he's involved to. So let's talk about the conclusion with him and Megan in terms of what this does for us in the context of some of these conversations about how the female characters are treated in this book and stuff because we've had this a couple of times now that Lobdell has done something with Megan where we had in the previous issue that she was actually the one responsible for taking charge and killing Brian's mentor and then we get another like hint of her I mean I don't know what to call it darkness or something here. Sure. <laughs> I often kick the Megan questions to you, Andrew. You can take it if you want. (laughs) What happens with Megan here in your reading? And did it interest you at all?
0: I would like to point out that I do find it kind of condescending. As if Lobdell's like throwing a bone to Megan. Oh, maybe she's powerful Mm -hmm. after all. And you're like, no, that's that's been teased out since at least issue three. Uh you're you're trying to do something that you, you know, maybe seen seen Claremont do in the nineteen seventies, uh, and it's it's not working for me, and I'm kind of finding it actually insulting to the character rather than empowering of the character, just because of the pre-established
2: continuity. I think it's really generous of you to assume that Scott Libdell read issue three of this book that he's on now. <laughs>
1: there's there's I, a reference to, i mean it's a frazetta reference too but i mean her stepping up to dark is you know a callback so i mean that could be the artist and not lobdell but i mean it is a callback to megan being transformed during inferno
3: yeah
0: okay i mean the editor knows which is not mentioned in right. the previous two issues and right. they're yeah. in limbo where the demons of inferno right. came from it's it, it's bonkers man
2: yeah <laughs> I mean, they're not in Limbo anymore. They're in other places. because like other He's going right. to make that happen. Like, it's literally uh... everything about this is just
1: I don't think any of the sloppy. continuity from this was carried over in any other books, right? This is just located here. Okay, right?
2: so Limbo appears again later, not only in other X books, in Excalibur. Yes, and the Soul Sword appears again in Excalibur. Darkoth doesn't. Like, the, the resolution of this is never... Okay, this was in 1991. It is now, as we record, 2021. Darkoth has not been seen or mentioned. Yeah, but this is his what last happened appearance, here? right? <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I said he last appeared in the official handbook to the Marvel Universe, Book of the Dead, issue 16. Yeah. Like this is a character that no one cares about, that Labdell threw a a dart at a at a board and found Darkoth It's like, I'm gonna make this work. Who's gonna know? And cause Darkoth's a character who died in like Fantastic Four I don't know like probably in 1982 or when something yeah like like years before this like a decade before this no one cares about dark he's a literal you know footnote that they just kind of tossed into the story why is he related to magic's limbo no good reason he shouldn't be he's a he's just a fantastic four i don't want to say villain he's a misunderstood character but who was effectively, he fought the Fantastic Four. It's yeah, cumbersome. Allied with them. Yeah, it makes no, like, none of this makes any sense. And it didn't matter because he was just like, it, he was chosen because what kind of nerd's even gonna know who this is? Well, me. I don't know who it is. I'm, you know, and in 1991, I knew who it was because I was the I was the nerd that read all of the official handbook to the Marvel Universe. So I'm like, really, Darkhoff? That's not where he is. But okay. And also because I was a big Magic fan, and this is this makes no no sense in the history of Limbo. I mean, I guess Labdel intends to kill Sim here. I guess I know he gets it's swallowed by inclusion.
3: by Darkhouse, big vagina mouth stomach thing sure i what's that is exactly what the page i was looking at right now <laughs> yeah, no. because they're also on that like megan is making this face that is like i cannot describe it it is like the face you would imagine like think of like a 1960s like sort of like leave it to beaver like oh geez i'm an empath and a shape changer and i'm afraid i'm not very good at either and <laughs> it's like no.
2: You Uh, restarted a planet. (laughs) You're fine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the issue I really have, because it's one of those things where I can see a grain of, you know, I can see the story being told differently, and that it actually would interest me, but it's just like, the way that it reverts to childishness for her, in terms of the dialogue too, and she does have like an innocence and a naivete about her, and that's true, but it's just the like, I'm sorry that he hurt you, now you're the one hurting you, and that's dumb, Yeah. like... I get why he thinks this is a good idea because he thinks like her naivety is like childishness,
3: but that's not the same thing. It's patronizing
0: again. That's what he's doing.
3: And and it shows you like the sort of problematic nature that is this idea that naivety is childishness and which actually does a disservice to children as well yeah. because yes. like a child <laughs> yes. would read this and be like what the hell like uh, because kids are extremely emotionally intuitive and like one they don't they just don't talk like this and yeah so i just find myself frustrated and i think part of the thing that is so frustrating about this issue about this arc is that you get a sense that like he doesn't care and that lack of care like well why should yeah. i care and that is a little ding frustrating.
0: That's actually my pet peeve, and it's 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 a broader pet peeve too. But like every character in this story, sometimes knows things that there's no way for them to know because Dell needs them to know that so they can give the exposition. And sometimes yep. and, and they're and that, idiots. That's because, just bad comics
2: writing. Yeah, and then sometimes they're idiots because he needs them to be in order to move yeah, the yeah. plot along. Uh, so I mean, the other piece of this it. entire this entire storyline. Starts And we, we talked about this briefly two episodes ago. There's no reason for them to be on this mission, because Megan, television addict who watches TV 24 seven, would not have allowed Dr. Doom into the lighthouse. How does that even happen? Megan's not a mm-hmm. moron. Megan, like, oh, I kitty. Yeah. Kitty would not have gone along with this. Well, yeah, and kitty like he knows Kitty that, is
1: jobbed bad in this arc. Right.
2: And he and he he knows that Kitty has this prior relationship that he did not read with Doctor Doom that is greatly simplified. Kitty is not a moron, Megan's not a moron. Like none of this makes any sense. And you know, like, hey, okay, yeah, sure, let's trust Doctor Doom. Why? You know, no reason
0: to go to limbo we got nothing like, else happening today. Right.
2: And it's not like <laughs> she doesn't even know where she knows that Limbo is like the the worst place in the world so why would she ever even want to go there she won't even touch the sword like for the last 15 issues that it's been sitting outside because she's like i want oh. no piece of this but oh but dr doom asked, so oh, yeah now and then all of a sudden she's like oh i shouldn't have trusted dr doom yeah you think <laughs> like, yeah, of course not it's dr doom like well, You've I mean, in, in terms
1: of like, in terms of like the sort of F you to the more complicated gender and sexual subtext of the Claremont run to having this be the resolution of Kitty no longer having Iliana's soul sword and armor. Oof that's hard. I mean, part of why she wouldn't touch the sword had to do with the complicatedness of that relationship. And when we talked about it before, it was bound up in an interesting scene in which Rachel was like, I'm your bestie now and everything. And there were a lot of interesting things going on there. And that bond between Kitty and Ileana being represented physically through that sword and through the armor of her friend that like coats her body in her friend's absence, that is incredibly sensual and meaningful. She is the possessor of her soul, right? And to just have that that's stripped away from her by Dr. Doom in a really, again, I, I said Kitty was jobbed. Absolutely, she is jobbed in this arc. It's infuriating. There's no resolution to it. And then Dark Hoth gets to keep the sword and rule over Limbo, and they just mm-hmm. go home
2: oh rule so over a blank space because limbo's gone now yeah. he's just gonna hang yeah. out in this void forever kitty
1: would never let reason. him keep that sword never 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 why would it's he want real... to nothing makes yeah. sense
2: about this the, the the resolution is nonsensical like it makes no sense at all it's just dumb and i don't know what they're even going for and again reading this 30 years ago i went really why why for all of this like none of this makes any sense
1: So we don't find any interest in this. I mean, is it trying to call back to previous stuff with Megan and this, like, element of, like, I said before, darkness in her or something? I mean, we get a deliberate comparison between her and Dark Hoth here, and we get it evoked in the art as well, which I assume was done quite intentionally. On the third to last page or whatever, there's sort of the scene where they're lined up together and their faces are parallel, and then we get the page... You know, the second to last page where he's having this kind of stroking her face, sort of romantic exchange with her. And she's very flattered by this. I mean, I didn't like this, but why don't I like this?
2: No one has ever told me me. that before. Yes, they have. Yes, they have.
1: (laughs) But I mean, what is it trying to do here? Like, I mean, I think Lobdell thinks what he's doing here with Megan is smart. I think he thinks he's being cool and smart and subversive and just doesn't understand. Like, I think what he wants doing. a dark phoenix. You think? You think that would have been where he went with Megan?
0: Yeah, I think that's what he was lining up. But I, I could be totally wrong. That, that wouldn't surprise that me since
1: a lot of, yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. But I mean, it's just a lot of things just seem like references to bigger, better stories, but kind of watered down. So that yeah. would not surprise me.
0: Can I be nice to Lubdell for a minute?
1: You can. You can.
0: <laughs> so I think I mentioned last time I've kind of dissociated from the story, and I'm not looking at it as a story. I'm looking at it as like watching a writer try. Uh, <laughs> there were three things that I thought were very small, unimportant things that were, were maybe not bad. I enjoyed the Wonder Man swagger comment because that was the kind of self-awareness that I missed from Excalibur. Uh, you know, how do you maintain swagger while fighting at the same time? That's okay. Sure. Fourth wall. Break. Deadpool. uh, I thought that some of the um, internal conflict of the superhero demons trying to play their roles was a good way to make them a little bit dynamic and interesting, where otherwise they're just, you know, faceless things to punch. Um, And I, I know it's cheesy, but I kind of liked Doom's line, how am I supposed to remember every life that I've destroyed?
3: Yeah, I was definitely gonna that was literally gonna be the next thing I said. So yeah, I I agree. That was like if I was like, Okay, if I have to say one positive thing about this, what is it gonna be? That was it. It was
2: better when M. Bison did it. (laughs) For me it was Tuesday. That's that's what that's what he's trying to do. He's like, But you know,
3: I
1: liked the design of Punisher Demon where he has the skull that's like the mouth on his chest and I sort of Enjoyed that. That was my one positive thing. I mean, I enjoyed some of the action. I mean, there's like sort of an elemental, monumental feel to the Dark Hoth Doom battle that I didn't hate. I enjoy the panel where Doom's armor gets busted and he has like his two hairy, beefy arms (laughs) inside of the armor, and it's very unintentionally hilarious. I'm I'm trying. So we're saying we like the
0: story after all.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I don't know. you note know, you know that to end not this game. I'm not, on on this game. I'm not yeah. playing this game. <laughs> this no. Is, this is my
2: least favorite
0: comic of all
1: time I am doing a reparative reading here. I'm I know. practicing preach. I, <laughs> 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 I hate this so bad. <laughs>
3: okay, here. How's it how's about this for a question? If you had to pick a thing you hated the most about it, could oh. you could you choose? Ugh. No. No. I, <laughs> 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 I mean,
2: I, I, yeah, the artwork I hate it at the time. Over time, I think I hate the story more. So, like, uh, nothing makes sense. I don't recognize anybody. And I don't mean just visually. I mean, like, intellectually and emotionally, I don't know why anything's happening. It is so jumbled. Like, it's just people doing stuff to get through. Let me throw this over here. Like, I forget, like, every flipping through it now. I've read this. I read it back then. I read it again for this story. And now I'm flipping through the, the pages as we're... You know, doing this review. And then I go, Oh, yeah, Wonder Man's in this. I know, because we just talked about him 10 minutes ago. But I forgot. Oh, look, there's Tigra. I forgot Tigra was in this book. I read this like two days ago.
1: (laughs) She doesn't get anything good to do, my girl. Yeah. Andrea, any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? Things that we didn't get a chance to cover. Do you have a moment that you hate the most out of anything in this comic? I think for me it's probably that panel where Megan says that's dumb and just the facial expression she makes there. And I'm going to have your voice for it in my head. (laughs) Anytime I revisit this again, which will hopefully be never, but still.
3: I think it's like yeah just the idea of pulling the smallest i i guess how would i describe this okay let's see if i can do it um (laughs) the attempt at conveying or imparting emotionality or making the reader feel something by bending about like suicide and that being like you're wrong if you kill yourself you'll die a coward and like just how that's thrown everything about this story is thrown in there and it doesn't matter. Like there's no extra thinking beyond that. It's like that line was thrown in that panel because that needed to be there to get to this next point, And it has no connection to what happened before. And it may not have any connection to what's happening on the next page. And even if it does, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it feels like a wet noodle of a comic. And I think <laughs> that is me coming full circle. <laughs> Resolution.
1: (laughs) That is excellent, Andrew Andrea. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm gonna do for my last thing, spotlighting very briefly, a letter from the Swordstrokes Letters page. Um, this letter is from C. Brock Harmon. Um short street kentucky dear sword strokes oh gosh oh golly oh wow that's all i can say about the new storyline girls school from heck was just great i'm glad to see kitty back with the team and the appearances of mesmero and fenris came as a welcome surprise different take than we had but still i mean it was a surprise yeah it was a surprise i can't argue there so it continues Kurt has to be my favorite character. His style and panache are unequaled. There doesn't happen to be a fan club for our favorite German supertype, does there? I don't mean to ruffle any feathers, but could we see Kurt at least try a different costume? The red, white, and black one is just great, but it's getting old. Last but not least, could the team members begin answering the letter pages? Their replies would be so interesting. And they sign the reply in German, which I won't read. But Terry Cavanaugh's response is, the team is so busy right now, see, we just wouldn't feel right about asking them to take time out of their hectic superhero schedule to answer their letters which is fair enough but uh i liked the reference to kurt's costume because this won't be current when the pod is coming out but they announced that they're doing that x-men 97 cartoon and i tweeted out that if they're doing that we better see kurt in the costume he wore in 1997 which if you're not aware please look it up it happened in the pages of excalibur and so he would get a new costume and that would be the costume that he got so i hope that Seabrock appreciated that when it happened several years from now <laughs>
2: Staying? There's a meeting of the round table.
3: No, I can't.
1: So, Andrea, thank you from the bottom of our still beating hearts for joining us to make the most out of this issue. Before we go, you must remind our lovely listeners about where they can find you and some of the fab things that you get up to. Where can people follow you and what stuff of yours should they be checking out?
3: Um, Well, really, you should just check out my hot, hot stream of consciousness tweets. (laughs) No that is primarily where I am uh I my day job has been doing all the day job things lately and taking me away from, um, some of my extracurricular writing activities for the moments, but I still wake up at the ass crack of dawn and tweet out the first thing that comes into my head, which is always <laughs> positive. Um, so that's i uh, I'm at miss a F a Y R E S. Uh, cause apparently I thought I would never get married. And, uh, <laughs> so that's just going to be, that, that's just going to be it forever. Yeah, and I don't think I have anything else going on aside from that. If you want to read some of my past writing, you can find me on Panel by Panel or Polygon or Comic f
1: Excellent. We will link some of those things for our readers in the show notes. Thank you so much again, Andrea, for providing us with colorful metaphors to help put this issue in perspective.
3: <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>
1: Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 41, discussing Excalibur number 40, The Trial of Lockheed. It's told mostly in rhyme from Lockheed's perspective as he fights for life in the wake of an injuries sustained in the Prometheum Exchange. Uh, I wasn't initially sure what we were going to do with that issue until I realized, obviously, we need to talk about it within the context of the history of funny animal comics. So, we are. We have a great guest lined up to talk about that. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't Forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes. You can find those via our website or the Box Podcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrea and Matt, for another red hot conversation. Thank you, Andrea, for fighting at our side. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of ThoughtForm Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.